Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, our text this morning begins in verse 16 uh, and runs to the end of the chapter. Actually, this is properly the end of Jesus' teaching in what we call the Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 17 is a prayer where Jesus prays for himself and for his disciples and for us, his future disciples. And we sometimes call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So here, Jesus ends his teaching, and in doing so, he sums up much of what he said before, but with this slightly new note. He wants to supercharge our hope this morning by telling us that he has, in fact, already, he sees it in view. He's overcome the world. Why is it good news for you this morning, whatever you're facing, that Jesus is the conqueror? Well, he's going to tell us. But in order to hear what Jesus has to say for us this morning, we need the help of his spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, it's no idle word that I say when I say we need your help. Lord, if you do not pour out your spirit upon us, if the spirit does not do his work of illumination, uh, we cannot understand Holy Scripture. Uh, We can't understand it with our minds, and we certainly can't have it applied to our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Grant this spiritual discernment of which the Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 2, so that we might see what it is that you have for us in the gospel of Jesus. Grant us this, Lord, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, Jesus says, and you will will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father in that day. You will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father 
and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you need not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I know you know that everyone has their own quirks, but here's one of mine when it comes to reading novels, and it, it's going to sound super odd, but I tend to read the first 20 or 30 pages of a novel, especially a mystery novel, and then I turn to the back and I read the last 20 or 30 pages, and I figure out if I want to then read the rest of the book. Now, for a lot of you, that sounds like heresy. I know for my wife, Sarah, it very much sounds like heresy. Some of you are thinking or muttering under your breath, but Sean, if you, if you, if you do that, you, you ruin the surprise of the entire book, and especially of a mystery novel. Well, that's true, but I've kind of always looked at it a little differently for two reasons. First is that I don't handle emotional angst very well. Um, the twists and turns of a story that plunge me into emotional depths and raise me to emotional heights and make me wonder if what's going to happen, yeah, I don't do very good with that. So reading the end of the story actually helps me out, which leads me to the second reason why I do this, is if, this, if I like the way the story ends and it seems compelling, well then I'm much more likely to stick it out, much more likely to persevere in finishing my novel. There's a sense in which throughout this upper room discourse, Jesus has been helping the disciples with the same thing. He's been telling them the end of the story. And he's been telling them that he's been telling them the end of the story. In fact, he does it over and over again. For example, John chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus said, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. John chapter 14, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. John chapter 16, verse 4. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you will remember that I told them to you. What's Jesus been telling us? I'm telling you the end of the story. I've been telling you the end of the story over and over and over again. Why? So that in the twists and turns, the emotional vertigo you experience, you won't give up. You'll persevere to the end. You'll continue trusting in me. He does the same thing in our passage this morning. In fact, it's how the passage ends. In verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me... You may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Why, why is this important? 
Why did the disciples need Jesus once again to tell them, I am telling these things to you so that you'll know, so that you'll have peace, so that you will continue? What's the reason why they needed to hear the end of the story is because of all the twists and turns that have happened just in this upper room discourse, just in these few hours in the upper room, in the night before the, Jesus' crucifixion. Think of what's happened. The emotional instability, the vertigo that they're experiencing. Jesus, their master, the one whom they've confessed to be the very son of God, has told them, I'm leaving you and I'm returning to the Father. Their leader, Peter, the head of the disciples, has just been told, oh, by the way, Peter, you won't die for me. In fact, you and all you others will deny me. And Peter, especially, you will deny me three times. Their treasurer, Judas, has rushed out of the room. They don't know where he's going. They're going to discover by chapter 18, he's actually going to get the chief priests and authorities and Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And then a few short hours after that, Jesus will be crucified. Hanging between heaven and earth, hanging between two thieves, and they will flee running from the Romans, whom they are sure are coming after them. There are all kinds of twists and turns that have happened already and are yet to come. And as those twists and turns happen, they might wonder, were we fools to believe in this Jesus? Were we idiots? Were we taken in to believe that he was in fact the Messiah? That he was in fact this son of God, savior of sinners, Lord of all. Were, were we crazy to believe that? And so Jesus is telling the end of the story. That, that I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. So that they might have some measure of ballast. In the midst of the emotional twists and turns and vertigo that they experience. And yet, that claim that Jesus has conquered the world that he has overcome the world, it has one final twist. It comes in a way that, that no one in the first century world would have expected. In fact, it comes in a way that very few of God's people from, from Adam's time to Jesus' time would have guessed. Jesus would in fact conquer. The Messiah would in fact conquer through crucifixion. He would in fact conquer by being cursed on the cross. And that would be the way that we would know healing. That's what Isaiah said. Isaiah guessed it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. By his stripes, we are healed. You see, there at the cross, Jesus, the crucified, is the conqueror. And he's conquered not just sin and death and devil, but all the other enemies that he might have and that you and I might have. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead so that the entire world would see that he was exactly who he claimed to be, son of God, savior of sinners, Lord of all. But friends, that was a, that's a word that, that not only the first century disciples needed to hear, us 21st century disciples need to hear it as well. You see, our lives, each one of us, has been characterized by all sorts of twists and turns and, 
and dizzying heights and, and plunging depths. And there are times where we experience profound emotional vertigo. Where we feel as though we've lost our bearings and we might slip and we begin to wonder, were we fools? Were we idiots to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That Jesus is Son of God and Savior of sinners and Lord of all? Were we taken in? And so we need to hear this word of the Lord this morning. That Jesus Christ has conquered. In this life, yes, we will have tribulation. But Jesus Christ has conquered. And because he has conquered, because he's overcome, that changes everything. Changes everything. Well, what changes? Well, first of all, because Jesus has conquered, sorrow turns into joy. Um, Jesus has been dealing with the sorrows of his disciples really from the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, from the first moments that he tells them that he is leaving them, he is going away, he's returning to the Father. He's been dealing with their hearts. Twice in the Upper Room Discourse, the disciples are characterized as troubled. Twice, they're characterized as having sorrow. But Jesus here reminds his disciples reminds us of the emotional trauma that they're experiencing he says in in verse 20 truly truly i say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful well when will that happen well we know it's just a few short hours from now though here he's speaking enigmatically using what he calls figures of speech. We know that he's talking about the cross. In a few short hours, uh, Judas will come back and he'll betray the master with a kiss. In a few short hours, uh, these Roman soldiers rounded up by the chief priests and scribes and Sadducees will arrest Jesus. In just a few short hours, he will be taken before a trumped up kangaroo Jewish court and condemned to death. In a few short hours, he will be led before Pilate and Pilate will wash his hands of him. In a few short hours, he will be led to Golgotha's hill. In a few short hours, he will be crucified. In a few short hours, hours he will be mocked he saved others can he save himself in a few short hours there will be sorrow and weeping and grief in fact the language here in verse 20 it's reminiscent of the way grieving happened in the ancient near eastern world you will weep and lament well it's this outward wailing this quiet weeping that typified the ancient Near Eastern Jewish grieving practices. That's what Jesus pictures here. And it all is because of the events connected to the cross. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story that Jesus is telling here. Because as, as we already heard at the beginning of this section, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And the disciples are so confused by that. What does Jesus mean a little while? What is he talking about? And so Jesus explains, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now. 
but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. When's that? When, when was it that, that Jesus saw his disciples again? A little while, I'll go away. I will come again. You will see me. You will have joy. When did that happen for the disciples? It happened on Easter Sunday. It was when the stone was rolled away. And the entire world could see that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. It was when Mary came and saw Jesus and thought he was the gardener, but Jesus spoke her name and she realized this was no gardener. This is the resurrected Jesus. It was when Jesus met Cleopas and his friend walking on the road to Emmaus and opened the scriptures to them and they came to know him not just in the preaching of God's word, but in the breaking of the bread. It was when Jesus entered that upper room that had been locked to keep the Jewish authorities and the Romans away from the disciples. Jesus entered into the room, showed them the nail prints on his hands and the wound in his side and breathed upon them the Spirit of God. It was when their joy was full because Jesus was raised from the dead. He was vindicated. Vindicated for all the world to see that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God the Savior of sinners, the Lord of all. And because Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, because he is the conqueror, sorrow turns into joy. What does that mean for you? Well, it it means because Jesus is the conqueror, he, he can and in fact will turn your sorrow into joy. The sorrow that you know through the loss of a loved one. We've had a number of losses just in the past few weeks of, of loved ones who have died. Sorrow turned into joy. The sorrow of the, of the brokenness that you've known in your relationships, in your marriage, in a friendship, the deep grief and, 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 and lament because of the, of the brokenness there. The sorrow from the continuing effects of some loved sin, the continuing consequences of some failure. All of these and more besides, as we turn our eyes from our, from our tribulations and from the twists and turns and from our emotional vertigo and we turn our eyes to Jesus, who is the conqueror, what do we discover but that our sorrows turn into joys? That, that's the whole point of the hymn that we often sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I once had seminary faculty colleagues who really didn't like this hymn because of those words. They thought that the hymn writer was denigrating creation, that, that the creation in our lives in this world would grow strangely dim, but that's not what the hymn writer is after at all. No, it's these sorrows and this lament and this weeping and this grief that we so often experience through this life, the tribulations that come, When they threaten to overwhelm us, the floods, they come around us and we wonder, are we fools to have believed and followed this Jesus? When we turn our eyes from the things of this world and we look full in his wonderful face, what do we find? Because Jesus is the conqueror, our sorrows turn into joy. That's what we find. And yet that's not all this passage has for us. This one who's overcome the world. This one who is the conqueror, he turns sorrows into joy. But also because Jesus is the conqueror, prayers receive answers. Jesus has been telling us that throughout this upper room discourse. 
In the same way that we were reminded that Jesus had been telling us, he was telling us the end of the story. So it is when it comes to asking in his name. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John chapter 15, verse 16, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, here in this passage that we've read together from the Bible, Jesus uses this language of asking again. In fact, six times between verses 23 and 26, Jesus speaks of asking the Father in his name. What is Jesus saying in in those verses? Well, he's saying three things. First of all, he says in verse 23, somewhat strangely to us, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. What does that mean? Well, I think what he means is that the disciples will no longer ask Jesus questions directly, not only because he's returning to the Father, but also because the Holy Spirit is coming. And he is the Spirit of truth. And as we've already heard, the the Holy Spirit will lead these disciples, will lead these apostles into all truth, all, all doctrinal truth, all historical truth, all prophetic truth. But above all, they will, the Holy Spirit will lead the disciples, lead the apostles in the writing of Holy Scripture to the truth as it is in Jesus. So he's not saying you will not ask anything in prayer but of me, but rather you will not ask me questions. You'll ask nothing of me because in that day the Spirit's coming. But, but the second thing that Jesus is saying is, I think he's reiterating the same points he made back in John chapter 14. Because he is the way to the Father, the the disciples actually have access to God himself. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Which means, because we have a real, vital, personal relationship with Jesus, guess what? You have access to God. Now, we know that, but just think about how unbelievable that is, that because Jesus is the conqueror and because you have a real vital relationship with him, you have direct access 24-7, 365 with with the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who rules everything, the God who governs all his creatures and all their actions, you have access to him. If you wake up in the middle of the night at 1.47 a.m., you can pray in that moment and you have access to the Father through Jesus right then. As you're driving home after the service at about 12.20 p.m., you have direct access to the Father right then. On Tuesday afternoon at 3.47, as you're taking a walk about your neighborhood, you have direct access to God the Father right then. You can ask him anything through Jesus. That's unbelievable. And yet that's what Jesus tells us. But the third thing that Jesus tells us here is that Jesus promises that prayers which come to the Father in Jesus' name in line with Jesus' character and Jesus' purposes in the world, will in fact receive answers. Why? Well, because Jesus has conquered the world. 
And because Jesus has conquered the world through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, because he's been vindicated as exactly who he claims to be, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and the Lord of all, we know that our prayers, when we pray in Jesus' name, in line with his character, in line with his purpose, we know they're heard, and we know they're answered. After all, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what he said. After the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus stood on the mountain in Galilee, and that's what he said. Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so when we plead with the Father through Jesus' character, according to his purposes, invoking his authority, our prayers will be heard. We will receive answers. Now, what does that mean? That means when you come to, G to God in Jesus and beg him to break the back of some beloved sin that you have been wrestling with for, for months and months and months and years and years and years, whether it's some lust, whether it's anger, whether it's lying, whether it's gossip, whatever it is. And you come and you say, Father, I know that it is your will that I be sanctified in Jesus Christ. And so I am praying in Jesus' name in line with his character and his purposes and his authority that you break the back of this beloved sin so that I might be conformed to the image of Christ. He'll hear and he'll answer. He will. Because that's in line with Jesus' character. It's in line with Jesus' purposes. When we come to God in Jesus' name and ask him to change the heart of a spouse or a child or a friend for his glory to convert them or to rescue them from a pattern of sin, we know that God will hear that prayer and will answer. How do we know that? Because Jesus has told us in Hebrews chapter 2 that he desires to present many children before the Father. He wants to display his glory in many children. And if many children, why not my wife? Why not my husband? Why not my child? Why not my grandparent? Why not my friend? Lord, that's what you said. I'm pleading your promises. I'm pleading in line with your character and your purposes. Hear me. Answer me. He will. When we come to God in Jesus' name and we ask him to guide us to the place in our callings, in our vocation, in our work, where we might best serve him so that he might gain glory, he'll do it. He'll answer that prayer. After all, he's, we pray every week, your will be done on earth as it's done by the angels in heaven. That's what God wants in, in our Monday through Saturday lives. He wants us to do his will now perfectly as the angels do. And so, of course, he's going to lead us into that sphere where we might best do his will. These are the kinds of prayers that, that God and Jesus Christ answers. Why does he answer them? Because Jesus conquered the world. And because Jesus conquered the world, prayers receive answers, as he tells us, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so because Jesus is conquered, sorrow turns into joy, prayers receive answers. But finally this morning, because Jesus is conquered, tribulation doesn't win. It doesn't win. The disciples think they understand what Jesus is talking about. Did you see that? Verse 29, they say, ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things. We don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you've come from God. And Jesus is like, yeah, right. Do you now believe? Do you really think you understand? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it's come, when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, 
and in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. They think they understand. But Jesus says, no, you, you, I don't think you really understand. This is what's going on, disciples. This is what's going on, Memphis believer. Tribulation's coming. Anguish is coming. Suffering's coming. Here in this passage is coming because his hour is coming. And as we've seen in previous sermons, his hour is connected particularly to his crucifixion. And when that hour comes, when Jesus is crucified, when the, the cross is lifted between heaven and earth, the disciples scatter. They run to their homes. They hide. They abandon Jesus. In fact, there's a great irony throughout this upper room discourse. The disciples are sorrowful because they think Jesus is abandoning them, but they are in fact the ones who are going to abandon Jesus. Right? They, they're sorrowful because they think Jesus is abandoning them. As Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father. But in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, when he is crucified, as one who dies on behalf of others, the disciples are nowhere to be found. They abandon Jesus, and yet Jesus is not alone. The Father is with him on the way to the cross. The Spirit is empowering him to sustain him as he bears the, the griefs and the sorrows and the guilt and the shame that is ours. And even in that moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even that moment of abandonment is in order to great victory. And because Jesus was crucified and because Jesus was raised from the dead and because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and because he ever lives to make intercession for us, we can believe my friends, that our tribulations, our anguish, our sorrows will not win. They will not win. In this life, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart. I have conquered. I have overcome the world. We can have peace right now in this moment because Jesus has won. Your sorrows won't win. Your anguish will not win. Tribulation will not win. Your cancer will not win. Your heart disease will not win. Your Alzheimer's, your dementia, they will not win. The brokenness of this world that threatens to undo us, it will not win. Jesus wins. He's already won. He says, I have conquered. He sees it as a completed fact as he views the cross and the empty tomb. And that's why we can have peace and we can say it is well. In 1874, the French steamer, the Ville de Harve, was making its way from New York uh, to uh, Calais in France. So homebound journey for that French steamer. Uh, a, a woman and her children were on that ship making their way back across the Atlantic. As Americans, they were going on the outbound trip to take a European tour. Tragically, the Ville de Harve strikes a shipping vessel and begins to sink. Uh, this woman uh, prays with her children and prays that God would rescue them, deliver them, but if he did not, that God would allow them to die with an eye to their glory, to his glory. A few hours later, her anxious husband, a man named Horatio Spafford, a Chicago lawyer, was pacing because he had heard the news. He receives a telegram from his wife, saved alone, saved alone. He's stunned, he's shocked, but words start to flood into his mind. And in fact, the only 
poem that he's ever written, he writes down, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Why, why could Horatio Spafford, with the tragic loss of his children, why could he say it is well with my soul? Because Jesus is conquered. He shed his blood for his soul. My friend, because Jesus has conquered, you can take heart this morning. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Your prayers will receive answers. Tribulation doesn't win. In the midst of the twists and turns, the emotional vertigo you might feel as your story unfolds, take heart. Trust in Jesus. He has conquered. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I pray for myself, I pray for my friends this morning, that you would supercharge and renew our hope. Help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're not on a fool's errand in trusting you, that you will not forsake us, you will not let us go, and that in fact, we can trust that because you have conquered. Lord, we desire to lift high your cross this morning because it's through the cross of Jesus Christ that we have confidence and hope. So Lord, please conquer us through these things. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.